Judges in corporate pockets. Entrenched structural racism. Rubber stamping bad decisions. Legitimizing police lies. The American court system has always been flawed, but never more than now. The judiciary, lawyers, and elected officials have sworn an oath to defend the Constitution, yet they're silent about dark money capturing the courts. We won't be. You're listening to May It Displease the Court. Welcome back, everyone. Well, I guess not back, but just to the very first episode ever of May It Displease the Court. A podcast about how deeply and totally screwed up the court system has always been. But especially under the Trump administration. Yeah. I mean, since Trump's election, I wanted to start this podcast to bring more people into the discussion about this plot to remake the judiciary and the laws that govern Americans and shape our way of life. Also, you know, to kind of strategize about how we can fix this broken system. Right. And I was lucky enough to be brought on board because I'm a rhetoric nerd and I didn't know anything about this uh, judicial takeover shit. But now that I do, it's all I can think about. It is absolutely disgusting what's happening with big money and Republican politics. But actually, before we get carried away, I think we should probably introduce ourselves. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, what's up, y'all? I'm Lee. Pierce, Dr. Lee Pierce. This is so weird talking to imaginary people. Anyway, um, I'm a rhetorician at a state school in New York. So I study rhetoric, which is basically like how we use words and symbols to make things true and false that aren't inherently true or false. Uh, I like to tell people it's sort of like what literary studies does, except instead of studying books, I study politics. That's kind of the the best way to put it. So for example, um, later in the episode, I have my fingers crossed that Mary is going to go on this rant that I love about how courts are physically set up to perpetuate this flawed system of obedience. That's, you know, basically rhetoric, looking at how something we think is natural, like revering judges, is engineered through language and ritual and physical space and so forth. Uh, Your turn, Mary. Okay, I am a practicing attorney and have been for about 17 years. Now, the vast majority of that time, I have been working for indigent clients, which means that I've been appointed by the courts to represent people who can't afford to hire Mm. their own attorney, and the court's required to provide a defense, well, criminal defense, if you're too poor. So that's me sometimes. Um, I also worked in public defender's offices, um, although I don't now. And I only handle court-appointed appellate work. Um, Ah, yes. And there's one more thing that I wanted to let you know. I have kids. I have very little kids. And in the age of COVID and working from home, Mm. you may hear them. And you may hear the movie that they're watching. So I just wanted you to, um, to let you know and beg your forgiveness. Yeah. No shame in that game. I have a lot of respect for parents right now because uh, I wouldn't want to be doing it. <laughs> so <laughs> kudos to uh, kudos, and thank you for continuing, you know, life, life on earth as we know it. All right. So this episode, this is episode one, inaugural episode, very first episode. And we are looking specifically, so we kind of like Mary and I got together and we thought, what is the most fundamental issue, the, the biggest flaw in the court system just overall? And we think it is the myth of this objective, impartial, independent judge that just hand down justice from on high. So that's what this episode is going to focus on. Yeah. And I, like most people, bought the myths about the legal system and the judiciary that have been, you know, packaged and sold through, you know, education, entertainment, shows, obviously, and the media and through their, their coverage. And also, 
when you get to law school, they really indoctrinate you into this notion that the law and judges should be respected and revered, really almost to the point of reverence. Yeah. So you'll kind of give us like the insider look into that whole situation. That is not my forte. And I, um, on this episode anyway, I'm going to connect some of the things that Mary has to say to some nerdy rhetoric stuff I have learned in the process of uncovering all this court system. And that's between the book of Judges and the book of Kings in the Bible. Because even though the Bible replaces judge with kings, uh, judges with kings, it still tends to treat the kings um, as these like pathetic losers and the judges as these mythical godlike beings. And I think that that biblical mythology carries over into the way that we think about judges, which dovetails nicely with how Mary sees judges from her, you know, almost two decades of, uh, or yeah, two decades of work in the, in the courts. Yeah. Except uh, to make things even worse, uh, we no longer have just that problem. We also have big corporate money from the Koch brothers um, that have come yeah, in. Not- yeah, not yeah. just the Koch brothers, but all of these far-right elite corporatist Republicans who are buying judges and plotting to ruin democracy. Okay, well, um, I'm going to have to lawyer you right here because we can't really say that they're <laughs> doing anything. We we strongly suspect that they're doing it. Okay, okay. all right, fine. Strongly. So uh, far-right elite corporatist Republicans who I strongly suspect are buying judges and plotting to ruin democracy. And so this is like a good time to point out one of the, the main differences between a lawyer like Mary and a rhetorician like myself, which is Mary, because obviously of what she, you know what she does, she, her first concern is that language be accurate. It represents the situation at hand and um, it, it stay as close as possible to sort of the truth of the matter. And then I'm a little bit more interested in how to use language to make an impact, uh, how to use words and symbols to basically construct the reality that I want other people to just adopt. I'm In that sense, I and the far right Republicans have a lot in common. <laughs> that is that is scary and interesting um, because. You know, when, when I, I really love kind of looking at all of this and be having it explained with a rhetorical framework because I've kind of absorbed a lot of what I know about the courts, you know, through the words and the symbols that they use to construct this reality. And I think that that's something that, you know, people don't think nearly enough about, you know, and maybe it's because we're not supposed to notice it. But, you know, when you go into the physical layout of a courtroom, everything about it tells you that the judge is the most important thing. She sits high above everybody else, like physically higher. And, you know, if you want to have a, if a lawyer wants to have a sidebar conference and go up and talk to the judge with opposing counsel, you are much lower. You know, really, my eyes are kind of at the judge's hand level. And so it feels just like I'm a little small child looking up at a, at a powerful person. And you have to address judges formally. You have to say, Your Honor, you know, may I have permission to speak? You know, you have to stand in order to ask for permission to speak. There's security, bailiffs controlling the courtroom, preventing you from going near the judge without permission. There's a staff, clerks running around. Well, maybe not running around, but, you know, they're, they're doing all these errands to make sure that the court has all the files that they need for the docket, if anything you know, was missing, they would go back to chambers and bring it out. Now, a docket, of course, that's the, that is the list of cases that are going to be heard in court that day. 
you cannot just walk into court. You have to have permission to be in court. You have to be on the docket. So they have all of these procedures, which, you know, can be argued they're done for efficiency and security. Yes. But they also convey this huge power differential between the judge and everybody else that's in the courtroom. And only when you're appearing regularly in court do you kind of get to like peek behind the curtain. And when you do, you're like, oh, my God, this is just a regular person. This judge is he's a regular person or, you know, she who screws up, you know, they, they maybe they don't remember what's going on in a case or they didn't read the paperwork that you filed three weeks ago or they're distracted because they're checking sports scores on their computer during court or maybe they, they're rushing and they cut you off in this argument. They're not really paying attention because they you know that they want to get to a spin class between the morning uh-huh. and afternoon dockets. You think like that doesn't happen, but it does. And, you know, now that I've been practicing for like two decades, I am seeing peers that I know who are running to become elected judges. And let me tell you, it's not always the people that you would hope would be running. Oftentimes it is, but not everybody. You know, there are people that are ambitious. Not necessarily what I want, which is the hardest working, most humane, Mm -hmm. compassionate. I want them to be so smart, like legal, basically legal geniuses. That's, That's who I want sitting on the bench. And a lot of times they're basically thoroughly mediocre, ambitious, or politically connected attorneys that are running. Yeah, it's it's kind of similar to academia where like the people you always hope who are great professors and teachers and just really like, you know, not necessarily pushovers, but they're just level-headed, fair people who are innovative in their thinking. They're never the people that run for these administrative positions. The people who run for the administrative positions are always the, the ones who want a power trip. Except, of course, the difference between my field and your field is that the stakes of a shitty administrator in my field are not someone going to death row. Right. And, you know, we, you know, when people are running for judge, you know, attorneys will kind of talk amongst themselves or you just think to yourself, you know, you wonder whether or not this person, if they get elected, are going to have black robe-itis, which is what we uh-huh. say, meaning, you know, Funny. are they going to put on that black robe and to themselves, be instantly <laughs> smarter, you know, and expect all this, you know, kind of deference. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not to say that judges don't deserve respect. I'm not trying to say that. But there's a level. And, you know, I think that it would really be great if they didn't automatically, you know, think, oh, I know everything now that I've put on this black robe, you know, that the power of that robe, which, you know, in the position, which they have over people's money, they have over their liberty. Well, and and you're not necessarily describing like lack of basic decency and respect. You're describing just like immunity from criticism. That Like that's what deference is, right? It's just we presume, we defer to, it's like the way that like we expect like when like little dogs run up to big dogs and they just like roll over on their belly to be like, look, I'm harmless. You automatically have all the power. Don't eat me. It's very similar. And like nobody, just nobody should be in that position at all, ever. Well, as attorneys, we rarely, if ever, criticize judges. judges, uh, We really don't like to do it publicly. So this podcast is way outside my comfort zone. Um, You know, I think that we keep our mouths shut or more accurately, heavily filtered, mainly for our self-preservation because, you know, judges are human and they can be petty and vindictive. 
And, mm-hmm. you know, if a judge doesn't like you, then mm-hmm. he can take it out on your client. He can rule against them. He can refuse to let them out of jail, can sentence them to more time in prison. And you don't want anything that you do to negatively affect your client. So you're essentially muzzled implicitly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, what's your job? Your job is to put your client in the best position possible. So if, you know, you are out there and known as this, you know, attorney that's going on, you know, saying bad things about judges, then, you know, they're not going to have like a great opinion of you. Mm. And so, you know, what we want to do here in this podcast, we're not, you know, we're not here to call out individual judges. That's not the point. But to be, to be clear, though, that is what I wanted until Mary informed me that that is not legal. So, <laughs> well, I mean, it just, it, 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 honestly, it's just not the point. It's just, ta- know, and it's tacky. Nobody wants to be tacky on purpose. Right. The point is to look at the system mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and, and to point out the flaws in the system. And one of those flaws, you know, in order to do that, we have to be, to give ourselves permission to criticize judges. Yeah, I loved uh, when John Stewart was still hosting The Daily Show, he would go on a lot of like talk talk shows like Crossfire and obviously get a bunch of shit for for him being like a comedy news station. And they one time um, he got criticized, I think it was by Tucker Carlson, who was the old Crossfire host, because he uh, John Stewart didn't grill John Kerry hard enough when John Kerry, who was a former presidential candidate, came on The Daily Show. And Stewart said, my job isn't to criticize particular politicians. My job is to point out the absurdity of the system. And he said, so I don't need to be liberal or conservative because both sides are equally absurd. And I think of that as kind of like our job too, right? We're not here to to show like a conservative bias or a liberal bias or take one side or the other. We're to point out the absurdity of the legal system and not even its absurdity, but just it's it's so inherently flawed and yet seems to be wrapped in some kind of Teflon structure that prevents this from being a topic of conversation in in the general public. Like almost like what's happened with the police. Like why isn't that happening with courts is what I keep thinking to myself because they're all part of the same system. How how are these judges just so immune from criticism? Well, I mean, I think, you know, a huge portion of people never see mm-hmm. see go to court unless they have jury duty or a traffic ticket. So maybe they sit, you know, and see uh, and watch part of a docket if they happen to have a speeding ticket or they see, you know, they experience jury selection. But other than that, you know, they're they're really not there. So they just don't know. And and then and then you add the media on top of it that has this just ridiculous portrayal of judges. I mean, that that almost compounds the absence of true not that it compounds the absence of their of, of, of reality on the ground, because not only do they not see the workings of things, they also have the void filled in by like public mythology, which is so deferential toward judges. Well, and and also when you think about, you know, shows on television, they're only showing you, you know, obviously this super scripted constructed reality that isn't real that they're not showing you you know the the actual power that judges have which happens before the mostly before the trial you know it's not and they're they're really not telling those particular stories they're telling they're they're telling those stories through like the eyes of the defendant or something like that so this Mm -hmm. is this is kind of shifting the gaze you know this episode, at least on the judges. So, so what so what was it? So what's it like then? Like being in the courtroom? Like, because I've only ever seen it on like how to get away with murder. So what's it like when you're actually there and you see this day in and day out? Well, all right. So this happened to me when I was a baby public defender or, you know, PD, I may call it PD, which is the jargon. Um, I got this job um, when I was 
really new out of law school. And the way it worked at the time was the attorney that was you know, getting promoted was the one that trained me. So for the most part. So this is an attorney that has barely more experience than I had. And, you know, she was going from town court to city court. So town courts and city courts mainly handled misdemeanors. So really low level crimes or violations and anything more serious like a felony would go out down to county court. So city court and town court were basically the same, except city court had a lot more cases. So you start in towns and there you would get maybe like five or six of them all over and you would drive around to the different towns and and, and handle the, the criminal matters. Mm-hmm. So so here I am and I'm going out and I'd been trained for like maybe two weeks. And, you know, I I handed these files when she finishes training. So I get like maybe three or 500 files, which are Jesus. people, they're people, and they all face potentially going to jail. And so, you know, while, yes, they are, li- they are you know, for like up to a year. That's what misdemeanor is up to a year. Mm. So, you know, I'm young and I'm like, these people's liberty is in my hands. And it was really stressful. I did not take a weekend off for the first six months that I worked there. Mm. It was super intimidating. Um, And maybe I took it too seriously. I don't know. I I certainly, that's ridiculous not taking any time off. But anyway, a lot of times these courts are at night. So you'd work all day and then you'd grab your files and then you drive out to like some podunk place a really small town, and I had pulled all the files, you know, out of all these 500 files, I pulled the one specific, checked the docket, made sure I had all the cases, and I drove out to court. Now, I hadn't met any of these clients before because I'm new, and I'm still figuring out, like, how do you talk to them? And, and you know, court is happening at the same time, so you have to, like, juggle between seeing your clients and handling your cases. So, I'm in the middle of talking to a client and I hear the judge like call up this guy and he starts talking to them and he's trying to get him to take a plea. And I'm like, and I like out of, you know, the back of my mind, I'm like, wait a minute. I know that name. And I look down at my Wait, 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 wait. Real quick. I assume people know what pleas are. Um, Oh, okay. Just because this confused me at first because I didn't realize that pleas were a thing and except for like TV. So tell people how those work. Okay. So if you're charged with a crime, then you can go to trial and say, I'm not guilty, or they can offer you to plead guilty to what you're being charged with. So if you're charged with a harassment, they could say, well, you can plead guilty to a harassment and get two work weekends, and that would be the sentence. So they want you to admit guilt, gotcha. and then you can, and then you would have potentially, depending on the crime, you could have a criminal record after doing that. So it's a big deal. Taking a plea mm-hmm. is a big deal. You're admitting guilt. You're waiving rights to, you know, what rights you would have to a trial. Like, it's something that you need an attorney to explain these things to. Right, right, right. So, so anyway, so this guy's up there and the judge is saying, okay, well, plead to this disorderly conduct, you know, da, da, da. And which is a violation. So it's a, even, it's even lower than a misdemeanor. But still, you could do 15 days in jail. Mm-hmm. So I look at my file and I'm like, wait a minute, this name is familiar. Oh, crap, that's my client. So I go, I, you know, I'm like, I go rushing up the the aisle, you know, to my client who's standing up there. And I'm like, hey, me, I am. Um, and the judge doesn't know me yet because I'm brand new. And I'm like, sure. me, I, I represent this guy. I'm the, I'm the public defender and I represent this guy. And the judge is like, no, you don't. You don't represent <laughs> this guy. Oh, my God. You this this is a violation. You don't represent a violations. And I'm like, I'm like looking at the file like, 
Yeah, yeah, I do. Here, I see. I I hold the file. Like, see, I have it. I have the file. And the guy's like, "You don't, you don't represent this guy. Your office never represents violations. You, you're just doing this guy a favor, and and taxpayers pay you, and you're 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 giving him some type of of a benefit because you know this guy." And I, and so my client, he's starting to get upset, and I'm like, because you know the judge is yelling, and this is this is not going well, and I'm like. I have never seen this man before in my life. I don't know him. I'm not doing him a favor. And I'm like, what is going on? I, I you know, my brain is going a thousand miles an hour because I'm just like, this is not how I pictured court yeah, going. And, and you're new. So you're like, maybe I'm wrong. Right. <laughs> but it doesn't seem like I'm wrong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I turn around, I kind of turn around and look at the, at the people sitting in the back. And I'm just hoping that like somebody more senior in my office would just happen to be there on a different case of theirs who can come rescue me, which of course there's no one there that there's, you know, it's just other defendants and private counsel don't care. And, and so I turn back around. I'm like, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. I said like 30% of my cases are violations. I represent him. This is, this is my client. And I think the judge at that point kind of realized that he was wrong, but he didn't say he was wrong. He was just like, well, I'm just going to adjourn. I'm just going to adjourn this case and, you know, we'll come back. And then the next time, you know, I came back, he let me represent him, but, you know, didn't make a deal about it. But, you know, nobody preps you for this. Like, Mm. here I am, like, hoping that somebody else is going to be able to stop this guy from, like, railroading my client into taking a plea. But, you know, there is nobody else. It's me. I'm the one. I'm the one who's supposed to do it. And, you know... I get back to the office and I, you know, of course, you got to debrief and tell the tell everybody like, and you're new, right? So you feel, you do, you figure like, I screwed this up somehow. So I'm telling them, everybody like, can you believe this happened? Like, this is so crazy. And they're like, oh, yeah, that, yeah, oh, so-and-so, yeah. You know, he's not even, they, he go, they go, you know, he's not even an attorney. I'm like, what? I did what? not know that. I didn't know that was possible. Yeah, yeah, me neither. No, he was like a part-time judge and he sold like tractors or timeshares or something and then you know, and then at night, uh, twice a month, he put the black oh robe on God. and he's this old grandfather. And I assumed he knew what he was doing. And it was just, it was, it was quite a, uh, I don't know, baptism by fire <laughs> into what, you know, the court system was like, was really like. Yeah, it's crazy. And, and you know, I'm a civilian and I've had like, you know, a couple of traffic tickets and I, you know, and I, you know, watch lawyer shows. So I'm like the perfect person to know to for someone to be like, oh, what do you think of judges? And maybe like, oh, you know, they seem fine. Um, So I'm astonished that like, and this isn't one person, right? Because as the show, as we're going to talk about in the podcast, this is a systemic problem that, I mean, how can you have someone who's, and again, I don't mind that people are flawed human beings. What I mind is that they're treated as if they're not, because like you really need parody you you need to have the same level of what's that what's that spider-man quote with great power comes great responsibility and what i'm getting from all of this is that um with great power does not come great responsibility in fact with great power comes some kind of uh like uh, like iron dome (laughs) that prevents you from having to be responsible for what's going on you know for the most part and so um, as I'm learning about all of this from Mary, and I'm I'm, I'm starting to like think about, you know, I wonder I wonder how this myth, other than media, because you know it's easy to blame the media, like where does this mythos of this higher than thou like judge that just deserves penultimate respect, where does it come from? And I wound up not surprisingly at the Bible because you know 99% of modern American democracy is Judeo-Christian, whether we take down the statues or not. And what I learned is that our entire cultural reverence for judges is sort of hardwired into our system. And it shows up actually 
not surprisingly, in one of the most famous Bible stories, which is David and Goliath. And so forgive me if, if anyone else already knew this, but it was new to me because I'm not a I'm not a Bible rhetoric scholar. I'm like a pop culture rhetoric scholar. But, you know, we all speak the same language. So most people know David and Goliath is this story of like the underdog triumphing, right, which is which is exactly how the media always portrays these <laughs> these courtroom shows. But that's actually not the story's primary purpose in the stricter biblical context. Prior to the David and Goliath story, which happens, you know, like mid-Bible, God always communicated his will to his people using, you guessed it, judges. They were these perfect beings. They were very honest and fair. The Bible talks about them in these very reverent tones. Um, and they don't have, you know, offspring or any of these impure motivations. So even though they are human, the Bible constructs them as almost like demigods. And then mid-Bible, uh, God decides, like, oh, the people, they would like a king. And God doesn't really want a king, but the people do. And generally, like, God wants to keep the people happy. And so I guess the judges were just, like, too noble or perfect for the for the humans or something. So God chooses Saul as the first king. And Saul is the worst. He is the anti-judge, right? He's paranoid. He's a total coward. He's obsessed with power. And so when this, you know, when this foreign group, the Philistines, threaten Saul's people, you know, God's people, Saul uh, goes and runs and hides. And uh, then David is left to defeat the Philistines, chosen warrior who's Goliath. Uh, forgive me, by the way, for anyone who is just clearly aware that I'm summarizing this. <laughs> so then anyway, David eventually becomes king because Saul is out. And he's like, he's a pretty okay king. Uh, the rest of the kings are awful, though. So so David is like the exception that proves the rule. They're all Saul. And the Bible is very clear how petty and ungodly these kings are in stark contrast to these wonderful judges that preceded them. And it's almost like because the judges in the Bible disappeared and we got stuck with these kings, that we remain nostalgic for this thing we never had that the Bible made seem like so amazing. But the one place we do get that lost, amazing, noble form of leadership is, of course, the courts. And so thousands of years, we've been like, whether we know it or not, we've been like fangirling over these judges. Well, that stuff's not just going to disappear. It's going to show up in modern institutions, just like you've been saying, Mary. And so then we get this extra layer of history and mythology, and it just further entrenches how hard it is to criticize judges or suggest that the courts are just like any other institution and need to be held accountable for their mistakes. Something that's always bothered me is when I walk around the courthouse and I see, you know, families that are gathered outside of courtrooms and sometimes they have like clergy members with them and they're praying and they're asking God to ensure that there's going to be like this fair trial and justice is served. And there's this like palpable desperation. And it's I it's super uncomfortable. I find it super uncomfortable because, you know, mm -hmm. I know who the judge is. I know who the prosecutor is. I know the defense attorney and I can kind of look at that and predict whether I think there's going to be a fair trial or whether it's going to be really tilted on one side or the other. And, you know, it's like the court is the realm of Saul, of man. It's not this oh place God. of exactly. God. Yes, exactly. And, you know, they're trying to bring that in, you know, because they're scared. They're terrified about, mm. you know, what's going to happen to the to their lives. Is this going to destroy their family or, or are they going to get justice, you know, either either side? And, you know, I mean, our court's always awful. No, you know, but 
I I think it's pretty clear that the current system is it's broken and it only occasionally gives the win to the little guy. But it's so rare. It is so incredibly rare that every time it happens, like a big thing happens, I get an email, you know, that's like, woo, you know, so and so got a win. And it's it's, you know, it's like, I don't know. You, you kill yourself and you think the facts are on your side and the law is on your side and you show it to other defense attorneys and they agree. They're like, yes, this is a good one. And you think that you're going to win. But then, of course, there's you're also acknowledging to yourself that you're probably going to lose. And like 99 times out of 100, you do lose. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as, as attorneys, we've, we talk about this, we win or lose. But like, we're not the ones actually that it's just like a, a mental thing for us, you know, not that that's yeah. nothing, but you know, it's the client. They're the ones who, when they lose, they go to prison or are out tons of money in, in a civil judgment, you know? And I don't know. I think because there's these couple of wins that, you know, we as defense attorneys, we as society feel like, you know, eventually over time, you know, the system will, you know, what's it like bend to the arc of justice or I can't think of the quote off the top of my head, but, you know, it's going to move in a way that is that is better. Yeah. But I think we've also been like way too patient to the point where, you know, there's these incredibly rich people that are, you know, exploiting the weaknesses of the the design of the legal system that has virtually no oversight. And they want to rig it so that the little guy never wins. And right. when I say little guy, I mean, like, everybody who isn't, you know, isn't already powerful. We're talking, like, really powerful. Yeah. And and the, and obviously, there are, like, academics writing about this. There's a couple of, uh, of um, sort of, like, what I would call, like, niche journalists. But the more we talked about this stuff, the more I was like, how is this not – like how is this not something that someone talked to? I I I emailed law professors and I was like, is there a is there a class or just like some basic instruction on the problem of judicial reverence? And they were like, nope. We just talk about the law and we talk about practicing attorneys. And I looked at op-eds and mainstream media. I mean, anywhere to find someone writing about this problematic reverence for judges. And I could not find anything except a very local newspaper called the Ledger Inquirer from Columbus, Georgia, of all places. Um, And the link is in the show notes, but this is the piece I want to share with everybody. So here's the quote. So the person who's the the journalist, or I don't even know if they're a journalist, there just might be just some, I mean, again, like just like people who sell tractors can be judges, people who um, are not qualified can be journalists. (laughs) So of the 40 Israeli and Judean kings between David and the exile of the Jewish people, There were 30 evil kings and 10 good ones. Throughout history, we've seen kings and emperors of all types, most of them as wicked as those of biblical days. Thankfully, American patriots decided we didn't need a king. We could make our own political and economic decisions. Our founding fathers created a constitution which accorded a lot of power to the judicial branch, understanding its importance. Judges today are different than kings because they get involved in the community volunteering for civic service, interacting with the people, making a difference on the bench and in the boardroom as well as in the public. And here's the last part of the quote. Like their biblical counterparts, it is our American judges who work hard to assure our freedoms more than the modern day authoritarians who flatter their audiences but govern in a most arbitrary fashion. And that is the only thing I could find 
And it's not a criticism, right? If anything, it's upholding and perpetuating exactly the problem that we're trying to critique. And I think it's really arguable whether most judges actually work hard to assure everyone's freedoms, given their preference for their preference for those who have money and power over the rights of the poor and the politically powerless. And this is and this has always been a problem. This is not new. But academics and investigative journalists have worked and they've uncovered actually a much larger problem from the past 40 years. And it started with uh, the Koch brothers. Now, I'm going to digress a little bit. Um, the Koch brothers. All right. So there was, we call them oh, that. And, and for oh. people who don't know, this is K-O-C-H, not C-O-K-E, as I thought for like 10 years. <laughs> right. And they have, right, right. It's nothing to do with the soft drink. Okay. So we call them the Koch brothers, even though one is already dead, but Charles is still kicking and he runs this huge corporation and it has lots of different businesses like brawny paper towels, but really they're this huge fossil fuel company and they've got lots of pipelines that pollute the planet. And he has been waging war against the climate change, uh, you know, that it even exists because climate change threatens his vast fortune. And these assholes can never have enough money. Like that's all they want is more and more money. Now, I I spent a lot of time, you know, reading different things. I highly recommend Jane Mayer's book, Dark Money, where she looks at the Koch brothers and how they have handpicked other wealthy conservatives to invest with them and create a, a private political bank. So this is like the top 0.1%. And according to Mayer, their goal is to create something called the mercantile right to take back and, if possible, take over American politics. Yeah. And the mercantile right is like a quaint word uh, for what I call them, which is just the corporatist elite who want to buy their way around fundamental principles of democracy. Yeah. All right. So exactly who is in the Koch network is intentionally kept secret. So, you know, you might think, Lee, Mary, you're like like being super conspiratorial, but Actually, no, we're not being conspiratorial. They are hiding all of this stuff and we're trying to figure out what's going on. So because their network, the Koch network, is intentionally secret, they are told to destroy all copies of paperwork, to shred their notes, keep their meetings confidential, to say nothing to the news media and post nothing about their meetings on social media. And since the 80s, they have been trying to change the way Americans think to make them think that there should be almost no government. So they're arguing for a limited government, drastically lower personal and corporate taxes, minimal or no social services for the needy. And they certainly don't want oversight for industry, particularly in the environmental arena. And they claim to be driven by principle. But interestingly, Mayor points out they're Positions dovetail seamlessly with. Oh no, I'm sorry. This is um, this is Nancy McLean, another uh, Duke academic. Their principal positions dovetail seamlessly with their personal financial interests. Now they did this by politicizing and weaponizing philanthropy to fund subsidized networks of you know seemingly unconnected think tanks, academic programs at universities. You know, they have this factory to create alternative facts. They write boilerplate legislation and give it to congressmen and state legislatures to just put in. Um, They have publications. uh, They fund news organizations and radio stations. And all of it is filled with their own ideology. And then 
after this, you know, part of this this uh, plan, they also want to change the way America voted. So they've been using their vast fortune to impose their minority views on the majority. They've they've come up with advocacy groups to make their arguments on the national political debate. They've hired lobbyists to push their interests in Congress and operatives to make these made up grassroots groups to give their move their political movement momentum on the ground. Um, for example, the Tea Party. Mm. And they also finance legal groups and judicial junkets to press their cases in the courts. They look for plaintiffs and then they fund their their mm-hmm. lawsuits in order to, you know, try to overturn abortion, for example. Yeah. Um, people call the Tea Party an astroturf movement, which yeah. I love because it's, of course, not grassroots. It's entirely top down created to appear as if it's bottom up. Right. 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 Yeah. So I'm thinking about this system and I'm trying to wrap my head around everything that you're saying. And it sounds like we basically got three pots. So first there's like pot one, which is this imaginary uh, judge as a, like this religious deity sitting up on high on these robes with these divine powers to know and do the right thing. They're totally impartial, free of bias. And that's the narrative we're sold because we need the system to appear infallible or else people won't use it. Right. At least that's the belief. Um, But the truth is, these are just regular people in robes, and they've got all the flaws, even smart and well-educated flaws. They got prejudice. They got bias. And then we have this second pot. And this is the one that historically has been ignored because we keep getting sold the first pot. So in the second pot are like exactly what you're describing, which are these judges who um, are flawed human beings with prejudices, but at least they're still independent. They're not in anybody's pockets. Sort of like me as an academic. I am pot too. I'm flawed. I have biases. I make mistakes. I, you know, you know, microgram. I mean, you know, n- you name it. And I don't think anybody like reveres academics the way that we revere judges. But nobody, I'm not in anybody's pockets, right? There are academics who are, but nobody pays me for my opinions. My opinions are formed through personal belief, research, exposure, et cetera. And then we have this third pot, which is this whole new problem on top of the problems. Um, that we've had for, you know, since the institution of the court system, which is the Trump administration and these mercantilist, corporatist, you know, fake Republicans, uh, because at least with biased people, like at least, for example, with like independent Republicans, they're not being paid by anybody to have their beliefs. They're just a person who believes in things I don't believe in, like they're pro-life. And honestly, you know, I like to remind people Nixon, who was a Republican president, had the most aggressive environmental policies of any president um, pretty much, you know, ever. So, you know, there are many pro-environment Republicans. But when the money comes in, you not only get people who are biased, but you get people whose thoughts and actions are driven by corporate money. And so these anti-democratic, revolutionary, corporatist libertarians, you know, Trump, Mitch McConnell, the Koch brothers, and all of this money. And so we do have two sets of problems, but they're related and they both have to be treated, you know, kind of at the same time. The myth of the judges, because like you say, the court system was always broken and we don't want to act as if just reverting back to what we had before Trump is the right move. But also, we also need to acknowledge that things have gotten considerably worse because now on top of the problem of not holding judges accountable, we have the problem of corporate money. Yeah, and I don't want to say that I'm grateful to the Coke Network and the dark money that they're 
using to try to destroy democracy in the judicial branch. But honestly, if they hadn't launched their stealth campaign and their attempt to completely dismantle it, you know, and make it into something that maybe can't be fixed, then I don't Mm -hmm. know if I ever would have had the courage to publicly criticize the judicial Uh, branch mm -hmm. about anything for fear of alienating judges against me and my clients. But I think that it's critical that we recognize what's happening and do what we can to protect our courts because, you know, I I think it's vitally important. But I also don't want to advocate for the preservation of an already broken system. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. to be clear, you know, the idea of an independent judiciary has a lot of merit. I mean, the judicial system was set up with the idea that judges are independent and, you know, they're this distinct branch of government that has some distance from people and can dispense justice from a place, you know, of wisdom, um, which people would follow even if they disagree. Now, the Federal Bar Association, I think, gives a great synopsis of this intent, and I want to read a portion to you. And just to clarify the Federal Bar Association, it's just a professional organization of attorneys and judges who practice in federal court. And they say, the stability of our constitutional democracy rests on public confidence in all institutions charged with enforcing our laws. The just enforcement of law involves the well-grounded application of facts to law and not political affiliations, personal interests, or retribution. Departure from this principle erodes public respect for the fairness of our legal system and equal justice under the law. Judicial independence, free of external pressure or political intimidation, lies at the foundation of our constitutional democracy. An independent judiciary must be free of undue influence from the executive and legislative branches and must remain committed to the preservation of the rule of law and the protection of individual rights and liberties. Now, judicial independence, of course, it's a great idea, but it only works if we're dealing with judges who want to uphold the Constitution. And the problem that we're running into now and that we're going to develop with in fut- more in future episodes is that we can't assume that judges connected to the Koch network are working to uphold the Constitution. Courts run on the honor system. Judges are supposed to be able to police themselves and each other. And, you know, we know how well that works in other industries. And we only think that it works better with judges because we somehow think that they're better than we are, that they're, you know, godlike. So honestly, mm. we don't think much about them at all. Attorneys who know more about judges and maybe how they use their power uh, to hurt hurt the powerless, who are kind of petty and vindictive and frankly mean, Mm. aren't really able to speak out. So, you know, we keep our mouths shut. And the public, they they almost never get a chance to see, you know, just how temperamentally ill-suited some judges are to the job of being a judge. However, they did get a peek. during. You're going to say Ka- Kavanaugh, aren't you? I am. I am. Yes. Justice Kavanaugh. Oh, my God. His confirmation hearings were- Not that it made a fucking difference, but Jesus Christ, what an asshole. But thank God, at least there's some like, oh, look, there it is. There's that thing that we've been talking about. Yeah. And so, you know, here's this guy who is, you know, being, you know, essentially in like a job interview to be elevated to the most powerful judicial appointment in the country, who gets up there and says, I like beer. I mean, can you imagine? <laughs> can you imagine sitting in a job interview? Oh my god! Yeah, you know, and and he lost. He lost his temper. He was rude. Interrupted senators, Democratic senators. You know, he was hostile and belligerent. He was dismissive. Mm-hmm. He refused to answer direct questions about his finances and who paid off all of his debts and mortgages right before his confirmation. You know, and the Republicans didn't hold his feet to the fire, which is no, their failure. Not. 
And, you know, frankly, Congress needs to investigate whether a judge is going to be independent or whether he's indebted or beholden to some powerful interest or somebody who paid off his, you know, his mortgage and mm. you know all his other stuff. You know, and so the risk is that once a judge is elected or appointed and they're confirmed and they get that black robe on there, that they are almost deified and thus at that point beyond further criticism. Right. So all of these all of these ethics complaints and things that were pending with Judge Judge Kavanaugh before he was confirmed, you know, they didn't end up getting looked into because they they were like Justice uh, uh, Roberts of the Supreme Court said, oh, well, he's confirmed now. So, yeah. So just forget 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 about about it. You know, so. So the system totally failed when they were looking into Kavanaugh. Mm -hmm. And, you know, frankly, this is where it's going to get tricky. If we stick our heads in the sand, presuming that all judges are independent because that's what they're supposed to be, even when we know that their campaigns have been financed by the Kochs and, you know, other corporate elite Republicans, then we're protecting form, but not Mm -hmm. substance of the Constitution. Yes. (sighs) I know. I know. It's, It's very upsetting. It's like, you know, it's like I could make this podcast or I could just hang myself from my ceiling. <laughs> it's going gonna, it's gonna to have to be one or the other. Well, you know, the point of this series is to call out and, you know, and examine where the system doesn't work and facilitate a discussion about how it can improve and it should improve. I disagree with the, the notion that we the only way that we're going to respect the rule of law is by respecting judges and never, you know, criticizing, you know, for example, Kavanaugh and his finances. You know, I don't think that it has to be that way. I think that we need to be able to acknowledge the reality that judges and attorneys are human beings. They sometimes do wrong. They can be motivated by things other than justice, by self-interest. And there that can also include forces that are outside of the law that are affecting their decisions. Yeah. And the thing I'm most interested in is, you know, when the facts are right in front of people, like people watched the Kavanaugh hearing when you could see this person doing all of the things that he did. I mean, the the facts are indisputable that he is unqualified for this office. How then do we act? I mean, why then? So that's where this mythology and this rhetorical construction around judges and the courts becomes so important because that sort of rhetorical common sense, that sort of mythology, that's the only way that you watch something happen like the Kavanaugh hearing and everything gets pushed through anyway. It's not because people are stupid or because they didn't understand what they were seeing. It's because centuries of conditioning and and money, right? And the money that goes into advertisement and promotion and embedded academics and embedded journalists, that money can make things happen that wouldn't otherwise happen even when the facts are right in front of people's eyes. So with that said, you know, a lawyer and a rhetorician pairing up to save democracy. Check back uh, next week for episode two. Our plan, just so everyone knows, is to release 10 episodes over the, uh, sorry, I can't talk, 10 episodes over the next 10 weeks, just in time for the 2020 election in November. And no surprises here, we will not be voting for Trump. And we are going to urge you unequivocally to vote for Biden. Yeah, the Republicans are pulling out all the stops. They are suppressing the vote, cheating out in the open. And so far, the Democrats are not taking the gloves off. Yeah, I just like speaking of rhetoric, like nobody else tell me, oh, it's the le- it's just the lesser of two evils. No, this is not the lesser of two evils. This is a wide chasm, 
like bigger than the Grand Canyon, which Trump, by the way, has proposed to turn into a landfill between someone with Democratic policies and a fucking cancer metastasizing through every corner of America. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to source material referenced in this episode. Because unlike corrupt judges and politicians, we do our research. Listen, subscribe, tell a friend, and be sure to judge us by rating and reviewing. Post-production by Joe Thompson and theme music by Avery Munger. Thank you.